Hello, it's John Bernadovich from Willery. I'm continuing my journey of writing my book, HR Like a Boss, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Jennifer McGlure. Uh, Jennifer is the founder and CEO of Disrupt HR, which I'm sure many of you know of, as well as her firm, Unbridled Talent. And she is an amazing keynote speaker. I've seen her several times present at SHRM events. Uh, in addition to that, her doing um, her own Disrupt HR five-minute presentation a time or two. So, Jennifer, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's a pleasure to chat with you about this topic. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, I know I'd reached out to you specifically. I know we've been charging forward with some unique things during this uh, certainly um, unique time with the global pandemic with our Disrupt HR Columbus event. And you've been great to support me and our community in ways that we can continue that message. But for today's conversation, I'm just looking for people to get to know you a little bit better. So um, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more than what I did in my intro of who, who you are and what you're focused in on, then we'll get into uh, our conversation about HR Like a Boss. Sure. Well, I started my career in HR, well, after a couple of starter jobs, you know how that goes, um, because I, at a young age, I always say I was a millennial before millennials were a thing. Um, I wanted to rule the world and I was like, what's the quickest path to impact? Um, it's probably not going to be the CEO, can't get hired as that. So for whatever reason, I identified what was then called personnel as the place to be. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud of me for having that kind of foresight um, to realize that that is a position in the organization where you have an impact on everyone in the organization, where you more than likely have an opportunity to interact and influence um, all employees at all levels in some way, whether that's through you know the, the policies, procedures, the benefits, the compensation uh, systems that you're creating and administering or being a part of the leadership team. So I'm grateful to have made that choice and spent uh, 18 and a half years in leadership and executive roles in human resources in a variety of industries. Then um, the company I worked for was sold as was the plan and kind of found myself with a little, I guess, existential crisis of, I love what I do, but I really don't want to do the corporate HR thing again. So spend a little time out kind of uh, talking with people about, you know, my skills and interests and what would be a potential good path, thinking that I was going to start my own business. And thankfully, a lot of really smart people gave me some great advice, which was, pretty singularly, you're not ready to start your own business. <laughs> you will fail. Um, so I'm so grateful for that advice. Uh, they steered me, again, more than one person steered me in the direction of maybe going to work in a small firm, uh, learning from you know business development, how to do relationship building. And um, they suggested executive recruiting. And while I would have never put that on my bingo card as something I would have done, um, again, it was great advice. Uh, went to work with a firm here in Cincinnati called Centennial Inc. Uh, everyone that I spoke with mentioned the owner of that firm as someone who was a relationship builder. Uh, I was not a cold colored transaction oriented kind of person. So that was what my uh, resistance to going into recruiting was. And so people kept saying, well, you know, why does it have to be that way? Why can't it be about building relationships and helping people, you know, make their businesses better and finding the right leaders for organizations? And you should really check out Centennial and Mike Sipple Sr. So thankfully he gave me a shot. Um, spent about three and a half years there learning from both Mike Sipple Sr. and his son, Mike Jr., who now is the 
uh, president of the firm and CEO of the Talent Magnet Institute here in Cincinnati. And just wonderful people, so grateful for that opportunity. Worked with a lot of companies, helping them bring leaders into their organizations. So got to see it from the other side um, of not being the person who, you know, is the one with all the cards. Um, and then, you know, during that time had spent, you know, quite a bit of time. I, I decided to give away 10% of my time to senior level executives who were in career transition because people had been so helpful to me in my own career transition that I wanted to give back. And as part of those interactions would show them how to use LinkedIn, which was relatively new at the time, about 2006, uh, would tell them my own kind of introvert to a professional networker story, um, you know, certainly was doing talent acquisition and those types of things. And when those executives landed in their new companies, they invited me to come in and speak to their leaders or their uh, HR team or their recruiting team or in organizations they were a part of. And so the speaking really developed out of that, just teaching people what I knew. And so that was what really connected with me as my passion. And in 2010, stepped out on my own to do speaking, training, executive coaching. Um, about three years into that journey, met a gentleman named Chris Osich here in Cincinnati, a young entrepreneur, just connected with him and was advising him and his HR tech startup. And um, somewhere along there, we had a conversation about holding events where different people had the opportunity to talk and share their ideas in a fun format. And Disrupt HR was born in December, 2016. So. Um, you know, that's still a, a labor of love volunteer effort. Um, we didn't, we, we didn't uh, maybe have some crucial conversations about the possibility of making that a business. Um, we just wanted to do it and we both had other businesses. And so here we are, um, what's that, six, seven years later, and it is still more of a labor of love, but it's built uh, a really good community around the world. People have had the opportunity to share their ideas. Over 5,000 people have given talks around the world. And we're both really proud of what it's become. Awesome story. I was going to ask you how, in all the years um, we've been involved and participated in Disrupt HR, I didn't exactly hear the story, but uh, now I did. And uh, congratulations. I, I know that is, uh, uh, it's such a unique and wonderful platform, but I know it's, uh, there's a lot there to that that goes into having all those communities developed across the world, right? This simple idea yeah. that you had about doing an event, which turns mm -hmm. into something much broader. So when you have a really good idea, uh, be careful. <laughs> what yeah, can come it, right? when you have a good idea and then, you know, a year or two later, people are like, well, how do you make money? And we're like, well, we didn't really start it for that, but that would have been nice. <laughs> Right. That would have been a great idea, but you know, it's, it's, it's like a lot of things. If it were a business, if you were running it as a business, um, it would take the focus off of what we intentionally wanted it to be, which was about people in the local community who had an idea that they wanted to share. Yeah. And so I know you'd share, I tell myself. <laughs> no, no, I know you'd share with me, not, not in a previous conversation, especially those that maybe don't feel necessarily comfortable or aren't, aren't showcased as professional speakers that they, that they have a really good idea. Maybe they're, um, as you mentioned, you, you've mentioned a few times introverted in that regard. Yeah. And, but, but I, I found some of the most successful presenters and speakers and keynote um, you know, folks that do that are, are, are introverted, that you necessarily, they don't feel comfortable talking in mm -hmm. front of a group of people as they're talking in front of thousands of people. 
So mm -hmm. I think that's a really unique and thank, thank you for doing it. I, I know you said labor of love, but I know it's been a huge part of my life personally. And at the same time, I know for many others. So yeah, well, I just, I love the stories that have come out of it and the people who have challenged themselves to give talks that then either they've taken that and run with it and now maybe they are speakers or they've started their own business or some people who are just glad that they could check that box that they challenged themselves and got up there and did something scary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I put myself in the latter part of that for sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Sorry, on the topic of HR Like a Boss, it, it start out the conversation with just the purpose of human resources and what your perspective is of that, Jennifer. Yeah, I guess it kind of goes back to, uh, you know, over 30 years ago, what I was thinking. I believe, you know, human resources is a very critical, if not the most important position in the organization. And I don't just say that to, you know, say something that maybe resonates with people. I really feel like that is the position for impact and influence in the organization because HR's purpose is to deliver the talent that the organization needs to meet its objectives. So we can have really talented leaders in other areas who have great ideas, who set great goals, but the organization can't execute on that without the right people in place with the right skills and talent who have been developed or who have been given the tools to be successful. And that's where HR is tasked, I think, with delivering on that. So if you can't do all the great things, make money, you know, make customers happy, all that good stuff without people in uh, the position or the department that is responsible for delivering on that, that's a great position to be in. So, you know, I think HR leaders, what I've tried to do over the last 10 years as a speaker is really encourage HR leaders at all levels, and I consider anyone has the opportunity to be a leader, regardless of position or title, to really step into that responsibility, uh, to own it, to really deliver on it, um, you know, to not get caught up in the where I sit or what meetings I'm included in or where, where my position is on the organization chart, but really to take that challenge seriously of delivering the people that are uh, in a position to deliver on the business objectives. Yeah, so you mentioned the impact and that that's a huge part of the kind of premise of the book is just, I think there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that HR has in uh, delivering that impact, not first and foremost to me, to the people. And then as a byproduct of that, then the results will come to the company. I think mm -hmm. all too often there's maybe a, a, a flip-flop of that in viewpoint. Uh, of which I think you can, you as an employer can get yourself in a, in, in a heap of trouble as far as trying to force results, not necessarily uh, deliver them um, by, by getting a group of people to believe in what they're doing and do it well together. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious, measuring that impact, like the success of that is you made an impact, right? So right. Do, do you have, a, do you have maybe a, a KPI or a metric or something that you looked at or in working with your clients or in your prior HR career that said, success, we, were, we made an impact because we did fill in the blank. Well, to me, the ultimate impact is, is that we delivered on the business objectives. So even if that's increased top line revenue or improved customer satisfaction, again, I feel like HR has a role in that. And so I challenge HR leaders to draw the line between their goals and objectives to those direct business objectives. So the KPIs are, did we hit the business goals? You know, did we hit our goals that helped to deliver on the business goals? You know, I think in other realms of, of not numbers, uh, you can measure your impact on people by helping them to grow. 
you know, or having people come back to you and say that the decision that you made or an action that you took or a conversation that you had with them or the coaching that you gave with them made a difference in their lives. You know, I look back on my career and I wish, you know, I think there's some advantages for people today who with a lot of these electronic tools that we have, maybe you can leave yourself, I encourage my son who just started his first job uh, after college to leave himself a voice note at the end of every week with what his accomplishments were for the week, just so you can have that log. And I don't really have that other than the things that I remember. But even today, you know, people will send me a message on LinkedIn or reach out to me in some way and say, you don't remember me, but we worked together, you know, 15 years ago and something you did made an impact on me or changed my life or now I have my own business because you encouraged me to step out you know whatever that was so I think there's both um, numerical and hard ways to measure your impact which are around the goals and objectives I believe with the organization which your goal should be tied to uh, but there's also that um, maybe not so measurable stuff where you're making a difference in people's lives and they let you know hopefully hopefully at least a few of them do yeah, no, that that's that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I certainly appreciate that. And and that kind of is driving me to to run down this path of this book is is that that I can continue to use the word responsibility. That um, a, a lot of people are unhappy with their work. And when you look at the Gallup twelve and the you know, engagement. I mean, the the data that you hear and that that's shared is it's really unfortunate, right? And we do it. We we work so much. We as a workforce, as a population, what one hundred and sixty million people in the U.S. are working. And so we want us to be happy when we do that, right? And generally enjoy it or feel like we're getting something out of it more than just the pay, right? I mean, I know we, yeah. most people do it to get paid. And um, I think it's also uh, to kind of follow up on that. I've always encouraged people, well, it's a fact. Don't equate happiness with engagement, you know? So the Gallup polls measure engagement, um, which is whether or not people feel connected to what the company is doing, the, the mission, the values, you know, does the work that I do every day in this company matter for something bigger than myself? I can do that and be unhappy. You know, I can be unhappy about where my office is or, you know, who my coworkers are. Um, you know, obviously you'd want to change some of that over time, but engagement is really something that we can impact as leaders in organizations by ensuring that people understand where we're going, why we're doing what we're doing, that they have um, a, that they have the information that they need to see the path to the work that they do and how that matters in the big picture. Um, keeping people happy is a day-to-day, -day, you know, you can give them free food, you can let them bring dogs to work, you can, you know, let them all work from home. And, you know, some people, it's like right now, we're in a period of time where a lot of people are working from home because it's a, you know, a health necessity. And there are people that are loving that and there are people that are hating that, you know, so is that something that we as leaders necessarily can control their happiness with that decision? Not necessarily. Um, but can we, you know, actually it's been interesting. The Gallup numbers have actually gone up during the pandemic. People are more engaged than they've ever been. It's actually reached record, you know, 34% instead of 33, 32, which is where it's kind of been for years. Um, there's been an increase in employee engagement over the last few months. And I think the conversations around that are related to there's more communication probably from leaders because we've been forced to really communicate with people and tell them where we stand. And we've 
been able to rally people around the goal of keeping our businesses going and keeping their jobs. And so everybody feels connected to this shared goal. So increased communication, shared goals, probably a lot more attention from your manager, even if it's over Zoom, but maybe checking in where maybe you didn't even see them when they had an office next door to you before. So there's a lot of things I think we'll be able to take out of this to say, hmm, during a time of global strife and, and upheaval, engagement increased. Hmm. Happiness probably didn't because we got you know, a lot of factors that people are you know, not necessarily happy about, but engagement increased because of things that were in our control all along. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, communication is a huge part. Also, empathy, like you said, the manager checking in. I think uh, as managers and leaders, the em empathetic to the circumstances that are happening. You just, if you if you weren't doing that now, then you're never, you'll never, you'll never do that, right? Because of yeah. all that's been going on in the world. So, so I'm cu I'm curious in that regard. You 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 having been one and then working with them and seeing them present at Disrupt HR and them as clients. Is there a, a characteristic or two that stands out to you for an HR professional that really gets it and is 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 really proficient at what they do? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. Um, leaders in general and HR leaders who are curious. You know, they're they're always looking for. You know, disruption has become a, a passe buzzword to disrupt. And now, you know, I had a keynote around disrupting HR and I don't think that will be something that I will give after this time because people are like, I don't want to be disrupted anymore. Um, but disruption in that keynote, I always explain disruption is not about, you know, like uh, breaking all the things. Disruption is about not necessarily being status satisfied with status quo. So even if the status quo is good, how, what do we need to do to potentially make it better? You know, what do we need to do to shake things up that we might discover something that's completely unique in a different way? Um, the people in HR in particular who get comfortable, oh, great, this is working. We're just going to keep it this way, keep it this way. And then eventually their leaders come to them and be like, you know, our performance review system hasn't changed for the last 10 years. And you're like, but it's not broken. And they're like, but it needs to change, you know? So I think that curiosity and this, you know, that kind of, um, not necessarily being satisfied with the status quo is a really critical component because if you want to stay ahead, you have to keep evolving. Um, and yeah, you can take a breath for a little bit where you're like, oh great, things are working, systems are all go. But the world is changing all around us. So eventually that system's either going to break or it's no longer going to be relevant. So to wait and be reactive until it's past time and something's broken or it's not working, then your leaders look up on you like you're managing a system that's broken. Instead of saying, I'm going to break it myself to make it better. Um, I think, yes, you'll fail some of those times and certainly having the tolerance for that personally and having your leadership and your culture be tolerant of that is important, but that's where the big wins come is that you constantly need to be looking at, even if you're testing something, okay, this is working great over here, but we're gonna test something different over here. You gotta constantly be looking how to change things. You know, how many of us, if I was running Apple, we'd probably still have an iPhone one, you know, cause I'd be like, this is the greatest innovation of all time. Look at me, I came up with this wonderful idea. Don't touch it, don't change it. But instead they're constantly saying, you know, every time you get a new version of that, you're like, why did they take away my headphone jack, you know, or why, <laughs> on my Where's Mac? Where's the home button? 
Where'd the home button go? Yeah. Why now on my Mac do I have to add all these dongles? I don't know the answers to those questions still necessarily, but they're not sitting on this is working. They're saying we've got to do something different and we got to make it strive to make it better. And as a result, we do get better. And I think yeah, that no. translates to HR. You've got to strive to be making it better even when it's good. Yeah, that curiosity, the adaptability, I think those are paramountly important. And one of the, the key points within the book, the premise uh, of it, obviously, is that responsible impact that HR has and its ability for you to, to think differently, to, to be different and to take action on those things, right? And constantly having that curiosity, I think, mm -hmm. is, a, is a wonderful way to, to kind of showcase that. Um, and, and kind of on the flip side of this, one of the most interesting things, uh, Jennifer, that I that that I've ever done presenting is uh, when I first spoke on this topic of HR like a boss at a conference up in Cleveland, um, I had this warning label because I knew the next slide was like, is John going to get run out of town here with this? <laughs> I hate HR, right? It was literally, I hate HR. And I'd read the Forbes story and the, the Sherm came out with something years ago about why people dislike it. And I have to tell you, I had to like control the crowd. In, in a really great way. They didn't all leave. They, they like two out of three of them raised their hands, hundred people in the room. So there's like yeah. 60 hands up saying, why do you, why do people dislike or hate HR? And everybody had a personal passion story about it. And um, it was, it was really curious and interesting to me. Really, that's kind of what drove me to, to want to write the book. One of the reasons why the, like that question spurned thought. And I'm curious from your perspective, having practiced it and been involved in it, uh, throughout mm -hmm. your career. Why, why do you think those not in HR hate the function of human resources or can at times? Oh, well, I think, you, as you mentioned, the Fast Company article from 1995 or whatever it was, the why, why we hate HR. I always tell people, turn, you know, read that article with the lens of turning the frown upside down. You know, everything that person mentions, you know, because the pushback on that was that, well, this person doesn't even work in HR but they're the customer of HR, you know? So if you, if you look at that and say, it's, it's about a lack of a customer service mentality, it's about, you know, adherence to rules, policies, and procedures instead of looking at the holistic picture. So, you know, why do people hate HR? It's the same reason where I look back on some of my career and I'm like, oh, I hate what I did, you know, because at times, you know, especially early on in my career, I took great pride in, in being very um, black and white, you know? This is the rules. We're following the rules, and I'm gonna, you know, get my glory from being a rule follower. Um, and sometimes, because we're dealing with humans, you have to say, does this rule really make sense? You know, I remember an example at one point. Maybe I had matured a little bit in my career because I can remember examples that are the opposite. But at one point, you know, working in an organization where it was for the first time, I really dealt with someone who was going through a cancer journey, you know, she worked in a manufacturing plant, we had an attendance point system, you know, but, and this was before FMLA, actually, it was right after FMLA had been uh, implemented. And even with FMLA, because of the chemo treatments and the this, that and the other, she exhausted all of her FMLA, she, you know, exhausted all of her leave, still trying to work during a very difficult time. And I finally just told people, I said, not going to fire. Yes, she's got enough points to be fired but sometimes we have to take a step back and say that's not the right thing to do now are you going to you know two years from now when someone is maxed out on their points and really deserves to be fired they're gonna be like you didn't fire Lisa and I'm gonna be nope I did not um, and so 
I think in some ways, uh, HR leaders often deserve the hate because of maybe reasons where maybe they would have applied the points and been exit. I've done that myself, applied the points and been like, you know, hey, hands are tied, gotta be fair and consistent and not been brave enough to take a step and say, that's not the right decision. And I'm not going to make that decision that would by rules be what we need to make. And I'm gonna to explain to you why I'm not doing that. Um, that's, that's a missing piece I think for some people is maybe they make that decision, but they don't share. And of course you have to be careful with in health related situations, but you can share your thought process and then people will agree or disagree with that. But that's the price of leadership. I think in some cases right. that you have to make the hard decisions and be willing to stand behind your decisions. You also have to be willing to change them. You know, I, I, I look back again on some of my career as a HR leader, even when I was a, a, an executive, looking back on decisions around bereavement leaves and, and requiring people to come back to work after three days of the death of a mother or father. And I'm like, I wish I could go back and redo some of those decisions um, because that was the wrong decision, you know, to, I think the, the really great HR leaders today, yes, you have to be consistent. I think Steve Brown um, way back when really kind of framed it in a way he's like, you're not fair. This is not about fairness. Uh, it's not even in some cases about being consistent. It's about making the decisions at the right time. And again, being able to explain the reasoning behind your decisions. Now strive for consistency, but sometimes it's back to the disruption. Sometimes you have to say, in this case, consistency is not the right decision. We're going to disrupt that thinking. Um, and we're going to do it different. And here's why. Now, if somebody has cancer in the future, I'm going to need to treat them the same more than likely um, because I've made a new precedent, but I'm not going to let that chain me down to now I've got to change the rules for everybody. Um, so again, it's, yeah, maybe I just went down a path of therapy for myself <laughs> because <laughs> okay, some, days, some days I look back on my career and I'm like, I just uh, would really like to have changed how I approached that decision, but I'm, I'm wiser now. And I think, you know, through 18 plus years in HR, I got wiser. Now I'm, uh, you know, 15 years removed from that practitioner role. And I now have had a chance to see things from the outside in. I've now had a chance to learn from more progressive HR folks um, and leaders in general over the last few years. And I would make different decisions because I know better. You know, if we know better, you do better. But um, I think the challenge for all of us is to strive to know better, uh, to not get comfortable in the, um, back to that, I'm good, uh, always be looking, always be searching for how you can be better. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You made me think about in, in, as you were sharing that and going through your kind of personal therapy, as you mentioned it, which I think is great when you reflect back on some of the decisions that you made, um, having empathy for people and having gone through or being able to kind of feel the experience that they're, they're having, I think can change your, your mindset. And I, I feel like as, as, horrible of things that have come out of this global pandemic. Uh, one thing that happened is that everybody, everybody was in this, right? We were, we were all in this. So we all had empathy about how this was affecting us, whether we had have a loved one or had gotten it or someone had passed away. Like we were all under this kind of cloud of, of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think it caused this kind of 
even the evening the playing field i think from a emotional perspective that okay i, I get that this is this is real where in some cases you know a, a death of a family member maybe you can't have empathy about that because you haven't been through it yourself before i yeah, know, I know even, for me yeah it changed yeah, to, me to, having gone through some of those experiences sorry yeah, but even i think again bad hr leaders of which i I've had my share of those moments. Look at it and go, you know, I'm really sorry about your loss. I am, you know, or maybe I've lost a parent too, but them's the rules, you know. So, um, but it, it, it's not easy. I'm not by any any measure saying it's easy. I, I again, just another story. Look back on. I can't think of 9/11, which obviously was horrible, and again a shared experience for for many of us. Um, without remembering, I was working in an automotive manufacturing plant at the time. Uh, the towers fell, you know, around lunchtime. And um, I got on CNN.com and was, you know, we, none of us knew what was happening. And uh, so second shift started at three o'clock and I got a call from a lab, one of our lab technicians who had an attendance problem already, was not reliable. And out of the 700 employees we had, she was the only one that called in and said, I can't come into work today because I'm scared. And I told her if she didn't come into work, she'd get a point. And I look back on that and I'm like, hmm, I don't know, man. Was that, the, <laughs> again, was that, did I have empathy for I did not have empathy for her because again, I, I looked at her past history and, and maybe that was the wrong decision. Um, but that's where I get into it. It's hard. It's hard to be an HR leader. It's back to, if you got it, you know, whether you got into the position or not, because you knew it was a position of influence or impact, it is. But with that responsibility of influence and impact comes the responsibility of difficult scenarios and situations where you are dealing with humans. Um, and your motives and your methods are going to be questioned and sometimes you're going to make wrong decisions and then you're going to look back almost 20 years later and go, I can't get over that I did that. Um, but was it the right decision? Again, I don't, it, probably not. I don't know. You know, we, we could have a round table discussion about that one. <laughs> but it, it's, it's not easy to be in a, a leadership role of any kind, but when you're in a leadership role where the decisions that you make are about people, again, I think you, you're, to your original question of why do people hate HR, that's why, because we're often placed in that position of making decisions with the information that we have about humans who are complex, and sometimes we don't know all the, all the facts, um, for a lot of reasons and maybe we make some wrong decisions or maybe we make the right decision and just because that person was negatively impacted they never forgave you know and so then they hate hr forever and that's unfortunate yeah i think back about what you just shared about how one of the things i'm trying to i try to teach my leaders and team members and even my children that you make you make the best decision that you have at the time with the information that you have and if you do that, sometimes when you have the, the, the benefit of time to reflect back on that experience, then you, you sometimes can second guess yourself. But you, you, we made the decision at the time with the information that we had. And I think, you know, in that particular case, right, there's, there's a number of rationales behind it. But I think, like you said, that empathy, that, that ability to, to kind of 
understand what that that human being is going through and being adaptable and, and at times that can bring other changes right that one particular experience can bring a change significantly to a policy or a process or the way by which you do things uh, in hr that can be profound but i'll go back to like your earlier point about um when, when you answer the question about purpose about kind of the responsibility for the talent that comes within the company is is there a particular question that you like to ask or understand from a candidate to see if they're going to be a fit for the organization you did executive recruiting and you hired quite a few people i'm sure in your career is, is there is there a question or, or something you're trying to get to to understand is it is this going to work for both the employer the the, this, the team the culture and then you uh the, the candidate sure i have a few questions that i asked you know to try to try to understand how a person is wired and to not approach those questions in a way that they're prepared, you know, they have prepared answers for. So in the past, someone said, well, you're manipulating people. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to get at the truth. Um, and what, you know, usually someone's coming in, maybe they're unemployed and they're interviewing for a job or even if they are employed, you know, they want to work for your company. So the smart people have practiced all the answers to why do you want to come work here? Why do you want to leave your current job? You know, they have the right answers to your questions. You know, what are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? Well, my weaknesses is I work too much. I care too much, you know? So the smart people have done their homework and have those answers. So I need to ask questions as an interviewer that get at what I'm really looking for by asking those questions uh, in a way that they're not prepared or that they don't see it coming. And that, that sounded very manipulative, to, but the questions, you know, for example, like I said, to get at whether or not someone is going to really um, mesh with the environment that we have. And I think culture and culture fit questions are always potentially problematic. But the question I would ask is, tell me about the best place that you've ever worked. You know, what was it about that place? Give me two or three reasons why it was just the best place that you've ever worked. And then my job as the interviewer is to shut up and to be quiet and to let people talk. And the more you're quiet, the more they share, you know, this, it goes beyond that rote answer. But then the follow-up question is more important of great, you know, now tell me about the worst place that you worked, you know, a place that you didn't enjoy working. What was it about that place or that organization that, you know, was just not your favorite? Doesn't have to be that it was bad or that you hated or it just was not your favorite and force an answer to that question. Because some people, you know, smart people be like, but I've never worked a place that I didn't like. Okay, then just your second favorite. Because what they'll reveal through both of those answers is what, what they get energized about, you know, and does our culture provide that? And then also in the, the what I didn't like about a company or my least favorite um, organization, they'll also potentially reveal some things that maybe are part of our organization that that we, you know, they're not going to be a good fit. So for example, if someone says my second, you know, my least favorite organization was place was just pretty high pressure, very fast paced, you know, constant uh, new projects, always having to work on things. And it just didn't feel like we were ever really able to take our breath and do our best work, you know, so they're trying to save that answer by saying, I just want to do my best work. If I work in, and I have worked in extremely fast paced environments, which some people again love. So I'm looking for the person that in their answer says the best place I ever work. I just never got a minute to think for myself. It was always something happening. And I love the energy of that. 
you know, the flip side of that, when somebody says that was draining to them, I'm going to catch that in that kind of, in those kind of answers. I'm not going to catch that in the, um, how do you deal with high pressure environments? kind of question, you know, because the smart person is going to say, oh, I'm great under pressure. I love it. Even if that's not their preferred way of working. So I think as interviewers, we have to ask questions that are, again, more curiosity-based. I go back to curiosity is kind of the magic bullet. I'm curious to know about scenarios, situations, rather than I'm looking for an answer to my question. Um, so people will say, well, that's what behavioral interviewing is. Yes, behavioral interviewing was supposed to be that, but people do, the majority of people do behavioral interviewing wrong. You know, they start a question with tell me about a time and they're actually interested in the answer that the person gives. That's not the point of the behavioral interview question. The behavioral interview question is to see how the thought process behind how the person answers the question. So tell me about a time when you uh, had a project that failed and how you dealt with that. I don't care what the project was or really necessarily how you dealt with it. I care about, well, I made sure that I understood what responsibility that I had in the failure of the project. I reached out to my boss to get their feedback on what I could. So I'm looking for things like that. Did the person take personal responsibility? Did they look for ways that they could get better? That's the point of interviewing in general is I'm looking for critical thinking. I'm looking for people who are adaptable. I'm looking for people that match with our environment. And I've got to ask really good questions to get at those things. And I don't think most interviewers, most HR people, um, have that innate curiosity to take an interview through that process. They have a list of questions and they want answers to those questions. And there's a big difference. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to use the word uh, manipulation and some of that, that, uh, you know, in, in an interview is, you know, some can compare it to like dating or going through a, a situation to where you're, you're both trying to figure this whole thing out. And the, the best truth is that is, is honesty, right? And mm -hmm. trying to get at that honest self, as, as you mentioned, is profoundly important and then to feel like, okay, you're just trying to get a job and I'm trying to hire somebody for a role right? Okay. That, that's part of the equation, but we want this to work out long-term because we're spending a lot of time together. You're going to do something and work for a company that hopefully you like. And I'm trying to avoid you getting into something you don't want to do or doesn't fit. And the same, same for us. And I think, uh, like you said, often, too often, it's just, I asked the question, I got the answer. They seem like a, a good person. Let's hire him, him or her. Well, I mean, uh, reality so. is they seem like a good person because I liked them, you know? Right. <laughs> I, my son, when he was going through, you know, interviewing for internships or co-ops or even, I was always, he's like, what questions do I need to be? I'm like, first of all, Andy, you need to focus on being likable. You need to smile. You need to find a way to connect with the interviewer. You need to be curious in your questions. Your likability will go a lot further in getting you hired than the specific answers to your questions. Now, again, let's make sure that I'm not saying that we all have to manage biases and that is a problem with likability being the most um, probably most important reason for people getting hired or not. Um, so we have to work really hard to manage against those things, but it comes down to, are you likable? 
because I'll forgive a lot of bad answers if I just, and, and I've made some bad hires personally as a result of that, which again, I learned from. Um, <laughs> I hired a person uh, to work directly for me as the director of HR. Uh, it was a new position. It was really going to take some of the workload off of me and interviewed a young woman and I just fell in love with her. I don't know why to this day, but it was like everything she said in the interview was just dripping with gold. And I'm like, she reminded me of myself and I thought she was amazing. And normally I would have had, you know, the executive team talk to her and, you know, a couple of other people and I would have you know done all these things, but I went straight to the CEO and I'm like, you have to hire her. She's a mini me. She's me 10 years ago. <laughs> I think she'll be perfect. Just please let me just go ahead and hire her. And he's like, uh, okay, whatever. Worst, worst, by far the worst hire ever. She was dishonest. Um, so let's be clear, not like me ultimately, dishonest. She had fudged her resume. If I had checked her references, it would have been a quick no, you know, but I was blinded by my own biases, I guess. I don't, I don't remember. So after that, I swung the opposite way. I did only, if people were going to work for me, I only did a phone interview the first time because I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to look at them. And then I had someone else talk to them before I interviewed them myself. So I tried to put all these gates around, you know, a bad decision. But again, you know better, you do better. Um, and I think again, curiosity is important, but it's also evaluating your own performance. When you look at the hires that you've made, have they been successful? Have they not? The ones that have been successful, why was that? And the ones that haven't, what do you need to do different to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future? It's, it can't always be that somebody duped you. She didn't necessarily dupe me because I didn't do the due diligence to uncover the very easily uncovered rocks. Ownership. Yeah, that's 100% ownership. Absolutely. That's awesome. So uh, you mentioned a couple of times kind of reflecting back on your on your prior kind of in, in the field of HR experience. If you could if you could go back at the start of your career and give that that younger Jennifer McClure a piece of advice or two, what would it be knowing what you know now? Oh, um, to not. I don't know how to say it, but I learned it very early on to not make it personal. Um, that, that the work that I do or the decisions that I make, if people disagree with them, that it's not personal most of the time, you know, and I, I encourage leaders now to actually covet disagreement, healthy conflict, because that's where the best ideas come from. But certainly early on in my career, I was very attached to my own ideas and very defensive of people who disagreed with them. Um, very hurt when someone didn't see it as being as perfect as I thought, you know, my ideas were, I'll never forget, you know, I'm sharing a lot of stories. I haven't done this necessarily much reflection, but very early on in my career, worked in a manufacturing organization again, where employees were highly paid, um, way above our industry average. And so as a result, even when I got there, they had not had raises in a few years. We gave them lump sum bonuses to try to ease the pain of making a lot of money uh, at the end of the year. And so that was constantly something, whether it was opinion surveys or people coming in my office to complain about something, it was always that, you know, I do great work and I don't even get a raise for it and blah, blah, blah. And so I was trying to find a way that it would make sense to give them the opportunity to get raises while still maintaining a budget and trying to keep our salaries or our hourly rate in check 
to have our competition catch up eventually. And I came up with this wildly complex plan of uh, kind of like a performance review bonus system that based off of your actual performance, you would be eligible for a raise, blah, 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 and took away the lump sum bonus and use that pool of money now as a merit pool. And so I presented this to all employees in the cafeteria. I'll never forget. You know, I'm like so excited because I'm thinking I'm just going to get wild adulation and praise because I now have implemented the opportunity for them to get these coveted raises. What I did not take into account because I had not talked to people, I had not involved others in my grand plan was if they'd had rotten tomatoes, they would have like pelted me, but they were so angry because the lump sum had become an entitlement. So taking that away was all that they heard. They didn't hear the opportunity where I could actually make more if I'm performing. Now everybody was getting something taken away rather than giving something to the higher performers. And I actually broke into tears in the room. And that was something that certainly I didn't want to do never did again because I was like, you got too attached to the results. And it was about your accomplishment and what you were trying to do for them. And as a result of that, again, didn't talk to people, didn't involve others because you wanted to take the, the merit badge for yourself. It's a win. Look what I did for you. Um, and so, you know, I, I would have told very early on Jennifer to avoid that situation altogether. <laughs> It is your ideas will always be better when you involve other people. Uh, when you ask people to poke holes in them. If I had just talked to a few people, they probably would have said, you know, older, wiser people would have been like, Jennifer, they've been getting this lump sum for years. You're taking that away. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm giving them the opportunity more. And they're like, they're not going to see that. Um, that's, that was a really important lesson that I would have told myself to avoid. Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that. I know that was uh, some in intimate reflection, which I, I really appreciate. And uh, I've really enjoyed our time together. I'm going to get you out of here on this. My last question is, how would you define doing HR like a boss? Stepping into your power, own it. You are the most important employee in the organization, regardless of what your title or position level is, because you influence and impact everyone in the organization. So wear that weight of that and use that power wisely. Hmm. Very well said. Well, I certainly enjoyed our time together. Jennifer, you, 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 you hit on a few points that I think are, are really important for those listening or, or watching our, 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 uh, our video is, is curiosity. You mentioned that a number of times. I really, I really liked how you hit on that, uh, that kind of uh, innate curiosity. Uh, about people, about the business results, about um, their own self-reflection. I think I think that's really impactful. The ownership. You talked a number of times about the importance of you know how and when you own things, how differently your perspective is of that, as opposed to kind of passing that off on someone else. Driving those business results, and then in your last story, talking about being inclusive and collaborative about major changes that are made because. Even though you may think it's a super great idea, if everybody else doesn't, then um, you may end up feeling like rotten you'll, rotten tomatoes are going to be pelted at you. You'll end up crying in front of all employees <laughs> in the break room, which is really sad. <laughs> you'll never forget it, though, right? You'll never forget that one, right? That, yeah. that wound will never heal. <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time. I wish you continued uh, safety and, and health and, and continue on your spirit keep doing the things you're doing for us in HR. We all very much value and appreciate it. 
And uh, this is John Bernadovich signing off for this particular episode of HR Like a Boss. Until next time.